This is the Luke Thomas Show podcast. You can listen to the full show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. Today on the Luke Thomas Show podcast, we're going to assess what might be next for Kamara Usman. Is it Gilbert Burns or it's Jorge Masvidal? Because Jorge Masvidal, all of a sudden today, tweeting about how he wasn't being paid what he wanted to and he might sit out. So what's the interplay there? We're going to explore that whole topic. Plus, Jimmy Smith will join us for Brawls Deep. He's going to get you ready for all the big fights from UFC 250. The Luke Thomas Show airs weekdays right here on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156 at 1 p.m. East Coast time. Don't forget about the mailbag. The Luke Thomas Show mail is pretty simple. LukeThomasShow at gmail.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Friday show. You know, I got to be honest. I will say that it does not exactly feel like the Friday before a pay-per-view. But I'd also be lying. If Listen, if I said I didn't like UFC 250, which I don't think I've ever said, but if I did, I, I would be lying. Because I can't tell you that it's going to do well on pay-per-view or that I'm super blown away by the main event or that it's the most star power I've ever seen assembled on a single fight card. No, it's, it's not none of those things. But... Listen, man, if you know anything about fighting and you're a real fight fan, there's a lot to like on it. There's a lot to like. So we'll get to some of that with the predictions and the main event preview and the five undercard to watch and undercard five to watch and a whole lot more. Um, you know what? I'm not really sure where to start with this, Cobb, to be honest with you, because we have breaking news kind of all over the place. Let me give you just the basic part of it. Number one, everyone made wait with like 45 minutes to spare. So the good news is uh, everyone's on target. Everyone made weight. UFC 250 is uh, ready to go. Your main event between Felicia Spencer and Amanda Nunes is now officially ready to go for a title for both competitors. There you go. All right. So uh, that part is worth getting to. Um, here's the part that I don't really know what to do with. Jorge Masvidal is not happy. So we've had all these fighters going back and forth uh, with UFC on their next fight, on you know um, money, and Henry retires, John is sitting it out. Well, now Jorge is uh, not thrilled. Um, yesterday, no, the second of June. He tweeted that it shouldn't be this hard to get a deal done, but you know who, who knows who he's blaming there. Then, 20 minutes ago, he tweeted, if I'm not worth it, let me go at ESPN. And you're like, okay, what the hell is that all about? Then he says this, why make me fight for half of what I made on my last fight because the other dude can't draw? I'm assuming he's talking about Usman. Maybe it's Colby. I don't know. And then lastly, he says, don't tell me about a pandemic when reports today show highest stock market has ever been. Everybody getting back to work and you buying an island. Stop playing us and the fans. Hashtag the awakening. And so far, that's all he's tweeted. He retweeted somebody writing him saying uh, this person writing to at Masvidal said the following, quote, the idiots will read this and say just fight. Try telling them to work for half their pay and to go back to work. I bet they would say the same S. And he retweeted it. Uh, boy, I got to tell you, listen, I had said, I don't know, Monday or Tuesday show. I don't, I don't really know 
you know, what the issue is here or when exactly it was that I said it. Um, but that, you know, essentially UFC is not going to be leveraged, right? There, you can sit out all you want. It's not going to work and it never has worked. And I'm not prepared to change that. I don't, I don't think any of that is wrong. However, what I will say is two things. One, more fighters are realizing that they are not getting paid what they're supposed to. Uh, and I don't know what that means beyond just sort of recognition. So firstly, they, they sort of know, like, matter of fact, that we're not getting paid what we're supposed to. Uh, and then second of all, they're trying the only piece of leverage they think that they have, which is just sitting out. Here's the one caveat I will add to this. I don't know how, I don't know where this goes. I don't know if some of these guys come back. I don't know if this is a way to change small details about their, I don't really know where we're headed with this, except to say, I don't think we're there yet. But, you know, if it's just John sitting out and it's just Henry sitting out, you know, you can say however important they might have been. I don't think that's enough. And even if you throw in Jorge Masvidal in there, I still don't think that's enough because of the resiliency of the UFC business model. Remember, the model has reduced a significant degree of volatility. It, it had built into it, right, where they were really dependent on sales as a function of whoever was headlining and their star power. Certainly, they get extra pay on top if it does really well, but they have a contracted fee now from ESPN to the tune of a lot of money. And so as a consequence, they are really able to uh, not have to bend to the whim of a fighter who doesn't want to participate. Like UFC 250, they're going to make a bunch of money on this anyway. Even if they don't sell anything close to what they're supposed to, they're going to make a boatload of cash. Right, So it's reduced the volatility. Still, at some point, you would imagine that will get old with fans not having stars fight. Right, At some point, that would be bad. So that means at some point, if they sit out long enough, one, and or two, if enough of them sit out, where it's not just Henry and John, but it's also Connor, let's say, which would be big, and now Jorge, and maybe Diaz is certainly not itching to come back, and and on and on and on. At that point, do we cross a tipping point where they do find some change? My hunch is to say yes, but to be honest, I don't know what that tipping point looks like. And I, I can say this very matter-of-factly, we're not there yet. I can tell you we, this is interesting social media fodder, but I don't know that we're at some... No, I'm quite sure we're not at some point where the UFC is having to rethink things. This is how they've done business for a long time. If you can get everyone to act in unison, or at least a huge portion of the people that draw the most amount of money, maybe you could get a force change. But I, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Still, at some point, you'd have to imagine if the press becomes bad enough, where you know it's not just MMA media complaining about the quality of cards, but the mainstream sort of picking up on the fact that the UFC is just trotting out uh, less than stellar events. If the stars keep complaining and that generates publicity, maybe we'll cross some tipping point where all of this changes or changes at least in some kind of way. I don't think we're there yet, but you know, you start throwing more logs on the fire, the fire gets bigger. 
I can certainly say that with a fair degree of confidence. That's interesting. Yeah, a lot of these guys are using this sort of moment in time to say, listen, man, you want me to compete under these circumstances? You are going to pay me. Uh, I don't, I, 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 it's weird because it has to mean something if enough of them do it, but it feels like we're so far away from that. It's interesting, dude. It's a really crazy time. These fighters are, are, these fighters are stuck in this position where they don't recognize their worth and what that means until they're much more senior in their career. You could even argue in some of these cases, late stage. Or in all three cases, belt holders. And you can say whatever you want about the BMF belt, but they gave him one. And now they want to exert all their influence. Kamaru, too. He's apparently the one that's hard to get a deal done with. And, uh, and yet they, don't, they, they recognize their only leverage is just to essentially engage in self-harm by not competing, not collecting a check at all, and then hoping that their harm that they do to themselves causes enough harm back the other way. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's a long, that's a tough road, man. It, but you feel like if they do enough of it, it would just, it, 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 it might work. You know, it might, I don't know. It's unusual to be sure. I've never quite seen this much dissension in the ranks. I've seen more dissension in the ranks like at, at Reebok, but that was like rank and file, you know, sort of mid-card guys being upset about it. But UFC has just been dogged for years by low pay concerns, whether it's ESPN report, whether it's uh, who was the guy who was the energy trader who had gone to an Ivy League school that had talked about how little the pay was to now the stars complaining that they don't make their fair share and they're right to now that they're being taken to court over it. You know, you feel like it's building towards something, but what's that tipping point? I don't know. Let's do this. So Dana White is suggesting, and I guess this new tweet is kind of part of this, that Kamar Usman's going to fight probably Gilbert Burns next. Really? Is that the fight to make? This week on World of Basketball, Argentinian legend Luis Scola joined the show and spoke about why the Golden Generation team of the 2000s were so successful. We got a little lucky. We had the best talent we have in a whole history at the same time. And the fact that those happened on the same era, they happened to be friends, they happened to play in different positions, and they happened to have great chemistry together in the court and off the court. Those things you can't control. New episodes of World of Basketball are available every Thursday on the Sirius XM app, Pandora, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, we are talking about essentially the welterweight title picture here to a degree. Cobb, join me for a moment, uh, if you can, please, sir. What do you make of, because I was kind of, I mean, I was sort of trying to noodle it all in real time. What do you make of Jorge's tweets and like where all this is headed? Dude, I don't know. And the thing is, I feel like it's not going to head anywhere until two things happen. Either the fans boycott and stop buying pay-per-views. Yeah, and good, good luck. The fighters. Yeah, exactly. Or option two, and this could happen, but I don't think it's going to because it never has. If the guys at the top start caring about the guys at the bottom and they do something on their own. Like if the fighters don't revolt, I don't see a change ever happening. Yeah, until there's just a formal process, right? Like these individual ones, they create headlines and they certainly 
Cobb, I would say, signify a greater discontent. But that by itself is not a plan, a strategy, or an effort, or a or an executed effort, is it? No, and I think I look at too. It's like, dude, we <laughs> we had a pandemic where it may have, may or may not, depending on what your thoughts process is on this, but most likely, yes, this was dangerous for these guys to fight in this time and train. And it seemed like fifty percent of the fighters were still on board with it and being kind of forced into a fight to make money. So that's why I don't see them really banding together and sticking it to the UFC to actually create the greater good for them and future generations of MMA fighters. Yeah, and I wonder if they did, if they would just get scabs from the uh, the regional scene. You know what I mean? Just fill a UFC card with regional fighters. If you look at this June 13th card, Cobb and I went over it yesterday. I mean, it looks like, it honestly looks like a Titan fighting card with maybe three UFC fights on it. It's honest well, to God what it looks like. It's shocking. Well, here's the thing. If they did that, I don't know. They might make it easier for the fans to get on board because if the fans don't care about the card, then maybe you got a shot. But like I said, it's going to start with the fighters. If they mass revolt, I think the fans can get on board and not support these cards if you're going to give us, no offense to the regional MMA scene, but if you're going to give us guys we don't know, it's going to be even easier to not watch the card. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, let's sort of turn the conversation to you because I suspect that these things are, they're always related. Anytime, you know, matchmaking, we've said it a million times. It's not just about like, hey, wouldn't this be a great fight between X and Y? It's also like, okay, X is available. Is Y available? No. Is Z? Oh, is Z available? Okay, well, then we'll just go that direction. And another component is money. The other component is always going to be money, right? If someone's asking for too much, they'll go to the guy who doesn't mind asking for less. And in the UFC, they have typically found, and when I say typically, I mean almost universally, that if one guy is asking for too much, the one right behind him is, uh, doesn't mind taking a pay cut relative to what they would ordinarily pay out, let's say. So Dana White was on, I guess, Steve-O's podcast. I don't even know that Steve-O had a podcast. I didn't know that he discussed MMA on it. You know, you're whatever. Who cares? But on that podcast, Dana said the following thing about who Kamaru Usman is going to fight next. Let me hear it. Burns told me that night, let's turn this shit right around. I'll, I'll fight... Uh, Sure. I'll fight Usman now. I'm ready. You know, I think... I love that kind of shit. When you're that guy, when you're that guy, it, it, it's highly likely you're getting that fucking fight. God bless. Okay, so here's the deal. I have no doubt in my mind that a big part of why he's saying that is... Part of what Dana is saying there is incontestably true which is to say the UFC has always kind of valued fighters who uh, are ready to go, ready to step up. Hey, you need me? What weight class? What place? What day? Yes, yes, yes. Oh, you'll pay me the same amount that you always would, you know, and I hope I get a favor on the back end. Sure, no problem. You know, so th they have a schedule where they have to pump out content. The fighters who are able to meet those demands more easily than other ones, they tend to just sort of, they really like that, and you can understand why. I mean, every, you know, you want to keep gas in the car, right? So you're going to be really grateful for uh, whoever keeps putting it there. All right. So that's the idea. So that part, there's nothing really controversial. I honestly wonder if he goes on these podcasts and does this kind of stuff. In fact, I'm, I can't say with any real certainty he's doing it here. But my hunch is that when he's going on there, he's saying, yeah, Burns is probably next. It's because, A, 
the Masvidal negotiations are difficult, and B, to put pressure on Masvidal to say yes to whatever the pay is that he doesn't like. Oh, you don't like it? Great. Here's what we'll do. We'll just go with Gilbert Burns, who just had a great win as the number one contender, and uh, is it nearly as costly as you? How about that? Why don't we do that? And you could say, well, the UFC won't sell as much that way. Right. They won't. No, they, there is no argument to be made that Gilbert Burns will sell even a fraction, frankly, of what Jorge Masvidal would sell. That is not, that is not up for debate. What is more interesting is that, remember, the UFC, I, I went over this in the, uh, how many times, they have significantly reduced the volatility in their business model. They get a check for pay-per-view no matter how poorly or well it does. And if it does really well, they get extra gravy on top. They have reduced the ability of the star power of the fighter to affect their bottom line. They haven't eliminated it. That, that part is true. But they've reduced it. And so the argument that they must be making to Jorge is, oh, you made how much to fight Nate Diaz? Well, yeah, that's because Nate Diaz was a draw. Kamaru's not. And Jorge's like, why am I supposed to take a pay cut because of that dude's problem? Just pay me better. And UFC is, it seems, again, we're getting one side of the story here, telling him to go pound sand. So here's the thing. And this is what's kind of funny about it. I never liked the Kamaru fight for Jorge. I don't like it for him. I mean, it's a title fight. Why would you want to give up that opportunity? I'm not even sure I would counsel against it. You know, if I was his manager or something, I think you take the biggest fights when you can. That, that seems pretty straightforward, but I, I don't like that fight for him. I don't think that, that suits his skill set all that well, which is to say he can do everything really well, but I don't think, and again, there's data to support this, that if you spam Jorge with takedown attempts, he's able to really get his game going, especially against a guy like Kamaru, who's got unending cardio, a good chin, and relentless forward pressure. I don't know how entertaining the fight would be, but I tend to think that uh, I, I, I would not worry too much, I would say, about the chances for Jorge, uh, excuse me, for Camaro in that sense. I would favor him pretty strongly, to be honest with you. And you can disagree with that or not, it's fine. Again, it's not a question of is Jorge a good fighter, it's styles make fights. Burns, on the other hand, to me is a much more interesting fight. They're teammates, which makes you worry that they might know each other's weak points to the, to the point such that they kind of avoid the fight to a degree. And I think that's a, a reasonable concern. On the other hand, first of all, Byrne seems gung-ho about it. Not just the title, but the opportunity to fight Kamaru. I wonder what he knows. Secondly, just sort of from a logical standpoint... I'm not saying Kamaru would never take Gilbert down, but that would not be wise over time. You take that guy down too many times, you are going to end up in a bad position against him. He is going to find a way to reverse. He's going to find a way to take the back. He's going to find a way to throw up a submission. He's going to find a way to win a scramble by virtue of like a missed arm bar that goes into an omoplata. Again, it's not just good jujitsu like Jorge has. It is multiple-time world champion in jiu-jitsu, multiple time. So it might be on the feet. And if it's on the feet, you know, who's a better striker, Gilbert or Colby? Colby's a more voluminous striker, right? He throws at a greater clip, okay. But, like, who's the, the more polished of the two? I mean, it's pretty clearly Gilbert. And if uh, Gilbert can take down Tyron, 
You wonder if he can take down Kamaru, too. I mean, I, honestly, I, I would argue at this point, I think Jorge might be a worse fight for Gilbert. Right? So if you put Jorge and Gilbert together, Jorge wouldn't take him down. He, if he gets taken down, he'll scramble. He's got good wrestling, too. And on the feet, I think he'd light Gilbert up. Or at least probably be better, anyway. But if it's Gilbert versus Kamaru... Uh, I'm not saying I would necessarily pick Gilbert to win, but I actually think that fight is more competitive than the Masvidal fight. Because the, the, the spamming of the takedowns against Masvidal, I don't think you would see that against Burns. And if you did, it wouldn't be very wise. So I don't know what to make of these social media posts. Your guess is quite literally as good as mine. I don't know what fight is next. I wouldn't be mad if, honestly, I wouldn't even be mad necessarily if they made Usman versus Burns because I kind of like the fight better. And hey, who doesn't want to see Gilbert Burns rewarded with a a great opportunity? I I kind of would. At the same time, you know, if they're only doing it as a way to stick it to Jorge for asking for more money, it's just, you know, this is how it puts the fighters in an impossible, or excuse me, the fans in an impossible position. How do you boycott that? Because the, the UFC, if they go with Gilbert, they're not offering you crap. They didn't go from a steak dinner to Jello. It's not the same thing in terms of attracting the casual audience, but it's still, a, you know, it's great. That's, dude, Kamar Usman versus Gilbert Burns is phenomenal product. How do you, how do you, how do you, how do you stick it to the UFC for not paying if you're if you're a consumer? For not paying Jorge more, I don't really see an obvious way. And again, they're going to get a cut from UF, from uh, ESPN no matter what. It's a really tough position, man. It's really it's it's hard for these fighters. I feel for them, especially these big ones. You know, they finally get to a spot where they can earn cash, and then the first thing they got to do once they do is take less. You know, can't be fun. Can't be fun. And if you, how much do you think Jorge made against Nate? Four mil, something like that, three, four mil. So he's got to make a mil and a half, somewhere around there, you know, to fight Kamaru, which is, by the way, a tough, a significantly. And that's the other part. It, it, you know, listen, let's be clear. Kamaru is a tougher fight. So you have to have a much tougher fight, and you're going to get paid half as much to do it. Yeah, I can see why he'd not think that's awesome. I sort of get that, right? Interesting. WWE legend, The Undertaker. I have tried my hardest to protect kayfabe. Honestly, just within the last couple of years, I mean, I would cringe when I would hear people, you know, like we're doing now, like talking openly about behind the scenes stuff. It would just like, I, I'd grit my teeth and this, I think I was the real last holdout to, to kayfabe. Listen to Busted Open's interview with WWE legend, The Undertaker, on demand now via the SiriusXM app. Just search Busted Open Interviews now free for most subscribers. Another fight card is on the horizon, and Luke Thomas has one mission before the fighters meet in the cage. I want you guys to listen to this show, and I want you to be better informed as a fight fan. So he's reached out to some of the fight game's greatest minds to help give the expert analysis you deserve. That's called the quarter blood technique. You do that, a quarter blood will drop out of person's body. They'll pull back the curtain on the strategies you'll likely see, so you'll be ready for fight night. I'm going to need you to stop watching my fights and give him my game time to it. It's time to go Brawls Deep. Let's do Brawls Deep for UFC 250. 
To help us get there is a gentleman you know quite well, a great color commentator, did some work I think last week or two. I, Jesus, I can barely keep the day straight at this point for Titan FC, but he's done a lot for some of the major promotions in the world, and he is a host here at SiriusXM. It is the one and only Jimmy Smith. Hi, Jimmy. How are you? I know you wanted Laura Sanko. I know you did. That's okay. I'm all right with that. I don't consider that a personal slight on me, but I believe I'm second best to Laura Sanko right now. So, well, it had, it had nothing to do with that. I just felt basically. bad because if you book an interview with somebody and then all your shit collapses, you know, it's a little on the embarrassing side. So I felt like I owed an apology. Not that you are in any way secondary to her. So I want to be very clear about that. Anyway, and that was thank Russo's you. fault, right? Uh, what is it? Russo? What it's is it? Russo. Come on. Uh, all those people, th- all those people throwing big bricks through windows. It's just, it's just Russo setting pe- things on fire. Russo, Russo. Um, all right, so let's do this here. I, I just went through the numbers, Jimmy. I-, I, I always go through on a tail of the tape kind of thing, but more than just height and reach, although that's part of it. But just listen to this for a second, right? Amanda Nunes, Felicia Spencer, as you all know, they're fighting in the main event tomorrow. Okay, Amanda Nunes has a reach advantage, modest, but a reach advantage. She has a clear experience advantage. Um, She has a positive striking differential, meaning she lands about twice as often as she gets hit. Granted, a lot of these numbers are from the cyborg fight that Spencer had, but she has a negative differential. She gets hit more than she lands. She has a worse striking defensive rate by double digits compared to Amanda. Um, She lands fewer takedowns. Her takedown accuracy is 16%, um, and of course, she only has three fights in the UFC. So give me the case for Felicia Spencer. <laughs> you didn't oh, say it's so you're that quiet? Come on, what is this? Look, there's no reason on paper why Felicia Spencer should win this fight. None. And what this highlights, here's the only thing I would say. If you said, if you put a gun to my head and said, you have to come up with a reason. She's a natural 45er. Amanda Nunes is capable of making 35. Spencer is not. Felicia Spencer has shown chin against Cyborg. Chin is probably the worst attribute you can have. It just means you get beat up longer. Okay. So we've seen she can take big punches and not completely collapse mentally or physically. Good top game, good pressure, good submission game. Now, here's a line I want to talk about real quick. Fighters and their supporters often want that well they want their cake to want to eat it too a great upset means no one believes you can win right you can't have it both ways if you want the great upset you want that rocky moment you want that gsp matt sarah moment sure then you can't turn around and say nobody believed me because if everyone believed in you it wouldn't have been an upset so as loaded as this fight is for amanda Nunes, and it is what does that mean if felicia spencer wins I will be the first person out here to say one of the biggest upsets in mixed martial arts history. You can't have it both ways. There's no reason on paper. There's no stat you can point to. There's no criteria we can analyze that gives Felicia Spencer a shot in this fight. It's just, it is what it is. If she pulls it off, it's a great upset. I think that's the people that want to see this fight. That's what they want to see. Can she pull off this amazing upset? Because I don't see it happening in any way. Yeah, here's the one thing I would say in defense of Felicia Spencer, and it's not really in defense of her more than it is the moment. And this is what I've said, Jimmy, and you know this certainly quite well, which is any kind of win streak in the UFC is hard to put together. I I actually asked this of fight metric. How many fighters have a four-fight win streak or more ever in their career in the UFC? And I think the answer was like less than 15%, something crazy like that, you know? It's very hard to do. She's on a 10-fight win streak. Each subsequent fight to keep that streak alive gets harder and harder, right? Because 
having a 10 fight win streak is more difficult than a five, all things being equal at the championship level. So is this the fight where the error begins to cost her or the lack of focus because she's raising a family, the COVID test, the COVID uh, uh, training scenarios? You know, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is. But I do think that, like, it's not a coincidence to me that, A, one of Demetrius Johnson's toughest fights was the one against Tim Elliott. And then sort of a side note, but it's kind of the same thing here, less about the streak, but more about the competition. If you look at Amanda's record, she blew through Ronda, blew through Sarah McMahon, blew through Cyborg, Misha Tate, all the former champs, Olympic medalists, all the ones that were like the dominant figures. She went the distance with Duran to me. She went the a full five, almost a full five rather, with Raquel. She went the full distance with someone much smaller than her, but again, very talented, but much smaller in Shevchenko. It's kind of interesting to me that she, A, has this task of, the streak to keep alive, and then B, she actually has done a little bit, quote-unquote, worse against the people that were not expected to do as well. But a couple things I want to point out. First off, statistically, that's a fallacy a lot of people fall for, that, that, that isn't mathematically accurate, is that, you know, if you flip a coin 10 times and each time it's heads, oh, what are the chances the 11th, the 11th one is going to be heads? Again, the same as all the other ones. The, the streak, the, if you're just better, it resets every single time. You can be on a streak of 15, 16, 20. But eventually, it's going to end. But mathematically, you have to look at that one fight. Is this the fight that's going to end it? And what I think you're saying is very accurate. It's going to take uh, a real bad out of the octagon problem, right? COVID kept her from training. She's going through a breakup. Something really bad is happening at home. Father time is going to have to have to catch up with her. I don't think anything in octagon about Felicia Spencer is going to catch up there unless there's something that we don't know about that has somehow been kept away from the MMA media, which is not easy to do. There's some huge issue outside that is distracting Amanda Nunez and she's somehow unfocused for this fight. I believe she wins. Now, the thing about her kind of, I don't say fighting down to her opposition, however you want to say it. I think in the Jermaine Durandamy fight, and in the Shevchenko fight, she respected their stand-up versatility, and it made her a little bit, I don't want to say cautious, but respectful. She didn't go out there guns blazing. She didn't go out trying to knock their head off or anything like that. Against Durandamy, she played the safe option, right? Top game, ground and pound, kept her on her butt, kept her doing what she wasn't great at. In that respect, I don't think she's going to have that for Felicia Spencer. I got asked that last week um, working for ESPN International, and they asked me, you know, uh, you know, she tends to fight a little bit more cautiously against certain fighters. Do you think that she'll do that this Saturday? And I said, she really respected Shevchenko's stand-up game. She really respected Jermaine Durandamy's stand-up game. I don't think she respects Spencer for all the reasons you just said. Statistically, I don't think she comes out there with that same amount of respect. I think she respected Cyborg. And remember, that first shot that clipped her was a counter shot. Cyborg was coming forward, guns blazing, and boom, she caught her, and then, then she turned it on. She didn't start out going, I'm going to hit Cyborg first. She counterpunched her, rocked her, and then finished her. So I think that respect is a big part of why she, as you put it, doesn't always go after opponents the way she should. I don't think she's going to have that problem against Felicia Spencer. I think she goes after her. Remember, I was there for the Pennington fight. That was a beatdown from beginning to end. Remember, she wanted to quit, and her corner basically talked her out of it. Um, that right. could have ended a couple of rounds earlier. Yeah. The only thing I would say to this, Jimmy Smith joins us here on the Luke Thomas show. The only thing I would uh, add about the coin flip, yes, every subsequent time is the state. If you're flipping the coin, it's still 50, 50 every time. Yeah. Even if you get, even if you get heads all the way through, it's still, but to me, it's like the grind of the game makes each of those coin flips a little bit different over time. And the, the, the last thing I'll say on Felicia Spencer, this is the biggest night of her life for Amanda. It's like, 
you know, this isn't even close to what she is sort of used to. So, like, again, I'm not here to pick Felicia Spencer. I just feel like the game has a way of wearing down people either physically or mentally or competitively such that these sneak attacks tend to happen when you least expect it. So that's the only thing I'd, I'd add uh, about that. Uh, the last thing, too. Very true. If, she, if, if, if Spencer does have a chance, my thought is it's got to be up close, right? If she can get a yep. body lock on her, again, how easy it is to do, I don't know. But if she can, <laughs> maybe she can cook with gas there. Right. She's naturally bigger. She can't make 135 pounds. Amanda Nunes does it routinely. That's the one advantage she has is her natural size. She might get inside. If she can get a body lock, get on top, top positioning's good. She's very, very solid. That's where she might win. But one thing I want to add to that, that, that is, I think so underrated in, in the era of the double champ of the big performance, people changing weight classes, the greats of all time, whoever is on your Mount Rushmore. Okay. Let's say Fedor, GSP, John Jones, Jose Aldo, whoever your, your, your top four are, whoever they are, they approached every fight as professionals, right? And I, I got told one time by a, uh, like a, a really good golfer, it's an amateur golfer, he goes, anybody can have a Tiger Woods day. He goes, what makes Tiger Woods exceptional is every time that guy went out there, it was his goal to win. Michael Jordan, there were no small games for Michael Jordan. There were no, he wanted to put up 50 every game if he could. That separates the elite of the elite from, I guess, regular greatness is it's just the, every game is important. And I put Amanda Nunes on that level. I think if there's a Mount Rushmore of MMA, she might belong on there. And so that idea of, yes, you're right, you know, that, that, you know, the Buster Douglases of the world, the ones you overlook are the ones that beat you. The greats never overlook anybody and they take every single fight seriously. And I think Nunez is one of those. So I don't think it's mentally going to be a, a matter of her overlooking anyone, but it's, as you said, something outside of the octagon, maybe catching up with her or she doesn't have a great camp. There's something personal going on that can always happen, but I haven't heard anything about that. I, I haven't heard any personal turmoil, anything like that. So let's talk about the co-main event. I love this fight, and it's so funny because there's no buzz for it, but to me, it's enormous. So Cody Garbrandt taking on uh, Rafael Sunsau. The stakes are huge, right? Because honestly, if Cody wins, he gets featured in the countdown. He's in the co-main event. Bantamweight, they're just making up rules at this point. I'm really a Bantamweight, of course, but for awarding title shots, they're just handing them out. Hey, if you have one fight in the weight class and you lost, great. Here's a title shot. You know, it doesn't seem to matter anymore. So I honestly think if he has a really, really strong performance, he might get one. Uh, not guaranteeing it, of course, but certainly it seems uh, reasonable to conclude it's possible. But if he loses four in a row at this point after going to Ricardo Almeida, after going to Mark Henry, let's talk about the fight itself. Let's say, right, just a second, Jimmy. If the guy who shows up is the guy who is building upon that December 2016 victory over Dominic Cruz, uh, what kind of a chance does Cody have against a Sun Sal? I think he has a very good chance. I think he has all the physical tools. I think he has the experience. He has the power. He has the size, has the wrestling background, uh, has the confidence he makes really poor in octagon decisions. And that's really the killer to me. When I look at Cody Garbrandt, I see a physical guy with real power and accuracy. And he has a lot of uh, great tactical tools, but we saw against TJ Dillshaw, I was like, dude, you're hit, getting hit by the same punch over and over until it knocked him out. He, he made no adjustments at all. When you're getting these hints, you're getting these opportunities to adjust your game plan and you're not doing it. And what I'm hoping is this change in coaching and the change in teams increases that fight IQ because against Rafael Asuncao, who's a veteran guy who 
doesn't deal great with physical pressure. We saw it against Corey Sanhagen. I got a very different build, but he didn't deal well with being pushed around. He didn't deal very well with having a small octagon. He didn't deal very well with fighting off his back foot. He does like to counterpunch. He does have a good takedown. Um, Corey Sanhagen kind of outscrambled him, but it was one of those things where Cody Garbrandt can follow that map to victory. He does like to bring pressure forward. He does like to throw power punches. Um, Rafael Sensao likes to counter. Will he catch that opportunity? Maybe it's Cody Garbrandt. Once again, dealing with fighters at the elite level, you don't get a lot of chances. They don't make a mistake two or three times. They don't hit with the same punch over and over and over again. And if Cody Garbrandt can't learn to adjust, this fight's meaningless. He'll lose this fight, but he would have lost to anyone at the elite level because he can't make those elite level adjustments. If he changes that around, he could have another title run. What happens, Luke, all the time, man, for you and I in this business is we like to believe, and so much of our time is spent on this person wins, they go here. This person loses, they go here. Every now and then, a title shot by like a Jose Aldo makes all of our job, everything we say, meaningless because it's not up to us. There, there is no rhymery. There's no playoff system. There's no this, per, this team wins, so they go to the Super Bowl. It doesn't work that way. And so it like rips away kind of this illusion we all have that a win does this and a loss does this. It's up to two people who gets a title shot. That's it. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's not up to the fans. It's up to two people who gets a title shot. And when that illusion is kind of ripped away that all this talk, you know, that you and I do so much of the time about where somebody goes, it's not meaningful at the end of the day. And fans don't like that. And I think when we're trying to make sense of a division, it kind of sucks knowing that, well, you know, it's also really, really arbitrary. Fair enough. Uh, nevertheless, they, you know, he's not being put in that co-main event slot, I think, by accident. They're, oh, yeah. curious, they're curious to see sort of what is there. And I wonder about that sort of error-prone thing that you're sort of describing, right? Because if you talk to um, Justin Buckles and you ask him about that night with, with Cody against Dominic Cruz, with the one we're referencing, he sort of makes it to be about essentially more or less what you're saying, which was they had a game plan. And, you know, Justin sort of saw it as his job to constantly remind Cody that these are the conditions under which you need to do X and these are the conditions under which you need to do Y. He had to constantly like, tell him, remember, we're doing this here, we're doing this there. And it sort of just showed up and became muscle memory by however long the fight went, I think four or five, I think it went the full freight, right? So five rounds. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, it tells me he's trainable. So he may not necessarily have, uh, it may not necessarily occur to him to do some of these things, but if he can get the right person around him and he has a good connection with them, and I don't know if that's the case with Mark Henry, I think beating a Sun Sao is doable. I guess I just don't know about the rest of that division. Like how long, even if he can beat a Sun Sao, can he get back to what he was? Yeah, that, that part seems a bit like lightning in a bottle. But there are two great kinds of quarterbacks. I know you're a Redskins fan, so I'll explain it to you. A great quarterback <laughs> does... One of two things, all right? Either they, they, they're great quarterbacks who run the play great, right? Who just have the study. They know the X's and O's. They're great. The others have that touch of being able to read a defense and come up with something that wasn't in the playbook. They make adjustments when they have to. That first one is what you're talking about. A lot of great fighters do. And Cody Garbrandt against Dominic Cruz did that. They had a game plan. He followed it. It's that game plan's not working. I just ate a right hand that you know, clattered my teeth together. I have to move my head. No one can tell you to do that. The coach isn't standing next to you telling you to do it. You have to know to do that. You have to know to go, okay, wow, this defense I I'm reading is different than the one that walked out here. They made a shift. I have to make an adjustment. That's what real quarterbacks that don't play for the Redskins do. Right. So 
Cody Garbrandt hasn't shown that next level ability to go, okay, plan's not working or this right keeps landing. I got to get around this. It's always pull out my guns and shoot more and stay in the pocket and throw harder. And, it, you know, that'll win sometimes. And sometimes it'll bite you in the ass. So that's the issue with Cody Garbrandt. Not that he can't, isn't coachable or can't run the play. It's when things shift and go wrong, can he make the right decision? Because the higher up you go, <laughs> the more things go wrong because they're better fighters. All right, so fair enough. And uh, listen, not all quarterbacks can be Philip Rivers, your favorite L.A. quarterback, but, you know, we do our best. Uh, with, speaking of guys who can make adjustments and who have learned – and a, a couple guys who have stumbled along the way. Lastly, we'll end on this one, Sanhagen versus Sterling. What a tremendous matchup. Sanhagen has the game that you're sort of talking about built in where he is constantly not really switching things uh, just because he wants to vary it for either camouflage or to set a tone or a pace – but also because he can, if he needs to, he just has so many aces in the hole. And Sterling, I think, has had a couple of issues along the way, but has gotten to a point where his game is so well-rounded that he is able to make at least some of those kinds of adjustments. And again, a little bit of a lengthier sort of like touch game versus what Sanhagen does. Size these two up for me. You must be excited about it. Oh, God, this is the fight of the night. This is the one that I think every real hardcore fan is really looking forward to. Um, it's also really loaded. And I want to talk that. I want to talk about that a little bit. Aljamain Sterling has been very public with his views of the UFC. He feels he's being disrespected. He feels he's being overlooked. You can say those things and push that button as long as you keep winning. As soon as you lose, it is, oh, really? Okay, you're a gatekeeper at 35. Good luck with that. He knows he has to keep winning. He has to win. And I think maybe even win in dramatic fashion in order to stay at the top of this division. So he's really, really motivated. But Corey Sanhagen, I like his physical pressure. I like his volume. He's a giant for the weight class. Very, very tall. Um, the the advantage I give Aljamain Sterling is he's the better wrestler. I think he's a better submission game. He's fought better talent. Um, and Corey Sanhagen has a habit of throw, almost like a Diaz, throwing stuff out and being kind of loose with his return. Now, his build, that's going to happen. He's tall. He's rangy. It takes a long time to get that hand back to your chin. Aljamain Sterling has the physical explosiveness and the sense of timing and range to make Corey Sanhagen pay for not bringing stuff back to his chin, to pay for not sitting his feet. You talked about the, the, the stance changes. He loves doing that, but it takes you a, you know, half a beat to set your feet after something like that. Aljamain Sterling has the ability to get inside and make him pay for these little tiny lapses that are part of his style and part of his build. Tall guys tend to have these big gaps when they're when they're being offensive. So Aljamain Sterling can make him pay in those instances, but we're going to know in the first round, if he can't snap Corey's head back once or twice for once again, not bringing a hand back to his chin, taking a little too too long in a, in a, a switch of stances. If he can't do that in the first round, there's going to be a problem. Aljamain needs to set a pace early against a guy in Corey Sanhagen. If you watch the Sun South fight, this guy brings it. He brings volume and pressure. And those are two things combined that I think are the most difficult things to deal with in combat sports. A guy who throws a lot and a guy who's not scared to physically cut off the octagon. He's very good at that. Fair enough. All right, we're up against a break, but Jimmy, really appreciate your analysis as always. Enjoy the fights on Saturday, and thank you so much. Appreciate you, brother. Anytime. Thanks for listening. Catch the Luke Thomas Show live and in its entirety weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156. On Twitter, follow at L Thomas News and the channel at MMA on Sirius XM.